What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Sports Medicine Broadcast, a podcast to promote and improve your practice as an athletic trainer. Today, we're talking about ACL injury risk reduction with Chris McQuilkin, also known as Tex. So we're going to hear from him. He is uh, he runs Power Athlete HQ here in, in Dripping Springs, Texas. So he's got a lot of really good resources. And we were just chatting beforehand about some of the programs that they created for the military and things like that. So very knowledgeable, very resourceful. And Sean's going to do a little bit more of an intro. But this podcast will be eligible for CEUs through the uh, San Antonio Methodist Group. So once the podcast is released, you can go to sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash ACL injury risk reduction. Again, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash ACL injury risk reduction and i'll have links for the ceus again provided through san antonio methodist so i am your host jeremy jackson and then like i said sean's gonna give give the intro there but without much further ado sean wants you to tell us a little bit more about texas background tex comes from the collegiate strength conditioning setting he was also in sport uh, uh was in the sport coach for a while and then moved into that strength conditioning world um Ended, I believe, down here at, or was down here at the University of Texas for a while. Um, did some stuff with them. Did kind of, kind of was all over in the Division D1, D3 worlds. Um, and then started with them at Power Athlete. And Power Athlete's a group that I've been following, I know, for a long time since I was still back at Rice. Probably, honestly, when I had first started at, at Rice and or, or before that when I was in the junior college world. Um, we ended up having Tex come down and do a, an awesome talk down here at the Trinity Conference that we have hosted by Methodist and, and, and some of the SMASA docs. And it was, it was a phenomenal talk. Everybody, we had great comments about it. So wanted to kind of talk to him again and have them do a little bit more just because of have great content that they're putting out. All right, let's, let's get rolling. So we have a, a slideshow. I made it as simple as possible because I understood this is podcast slash video. So give you the option to hear it and feel it versus just see it and guide through it. So I'll do my best to articulate and paint the picture of the slides for those that are listening through the, the podcast platform. But for the video, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen and then kick us off with a slideshow. How are we looking? Good. Perfect. Beautiful. Awesome. So this is a presentation entitled ACL Injury Risk Reduction. Our goal, our simple objective is going to be injury risk reduction, but creating a common language. So you as a, a medical or sports medicine professional, you have the opportunity to interact with parents, athletes, sport coaches, and strength coaches, all of which have a different understanding and goal for their athlete. The athlete, their goal is simple performance and play. I don't care. Tape it up. I'm going to play. The sport coach, performance, win. That is their goal. They will side on that versus an athlete's long-term athletic ability and health. Then our parent, you know their number one goal is keeping their athlete, their kid, safe and healthy and injury-free. So prevention is a difficult term to try to sell and promote when it comes to sport coach. So we're going to play with prevention and injury risk reduction, but our objective is to create a common language here. And the common language is going to be movement. So getting into it quickly, brief touching points on power athlete. 
So we are a worldwide strength and conditioning organization. We're targeted through performance-based education, performance-based programs that we deliver directly to athletes through our app. But overarching objective is going to be helping people unlock their athletic potential, no matter the current stage they are in their athlete life cycle, whether it's a novice athlete like a high school or a trained athlete like a college or into professional also take that life cycle into consideration for the coach coach just starting to understand athletic training strength and conditioning and things like that and help them see the overarching goal towards performance our personality pretty straightforward no bullshit no gimmicks no excuses no half measures we're not selling anything other than movement and sound strength and conditioning our mission Simply put, empower your performance, whether you're any of these stakeholders we presented earlier, an athlete, a parent, a sport coach, or a sports medicine professional, it all comes down to performance. Presentation objective, as I said earlier, non-contact injury reduction. We're going to use the ACL as a tool to help you understand injury prevention and injury risk reduction. So the tools that we present can be applied to shoulder injuries. They can be applied to back injuries, but I just, I love the ACL and because a lot of the research and the opportunities that I've had to connect through our podcast with switched on guys like Dr. Tim Hewitt, uh, Adam Ants, Dr. Adam Ants is a surgeon out of Florida. And I'm trying to remember the, the group he's with, I think it's the Andrews Institute but really switched on cat and man, we just love talking about the knee return to play as well as training through and keeping the athletes healthy. So athletic potential, and this is where I want to begin. As, as Sean mentioned earlier, I began my coaching career through sport coach. I was a collegiate athlete with the sport of lacrosse and I had a great opportunity to then go into coaching as a grad assistant coach. So get some free grad school in exchange for long hours and losing but it was my first exposure to coaching and what really tricked me out was recruiting so this is where you are going out and talking to parents you're watching athletes play and you are making a decision their performance their future their potential is in your hands and i did this for three years and i it took me a three years to basically figure out a good system and approach for viewing athletes to that will then push and gear towards their potential. So on our slide here, we have a Venn diagram and it took me a long time to understand and figure this out. But when I was recruiting high schoolers, I checked off three things. So we have a, one of the, the circles in the Venn diagram is mental. One is skill and the other is athleticism. So I was looking for fundamentals in respect to mental, not necessarily skills, but mental and how they were acting and running and communicating. Because most of the summer ball, it's with, it's with your boys, it's pickup, and you don't know these kids more or less until you have the opportunity to finish summer out with them. So how are they interacting within this respect? How are they reacting to bad shots, poor passes? Do they mope? Do they blame and point at the other guys? So mental was a big part. Then we have the skill. I could not go after these kids without understanding skill, this other circle. So the basic approach, and this could be applied to any sport, 
within lacrosse, it's things like picking up the ball off the ground. Uh, in goalie, it's a lot of footwork, defense footwork. So simple things, but looking for a coachable athlete and skills. Then finally, athleticism. And this is what really sparked a passion for my now career, which is understanding movement, athleticism, and teaching athleticism. So I was just looking for these athletes, not necessarily the tier D1 that Notre Dame kids were taking on for the sport of lacrosse, but kids that were not, didn't have two left feet. They weren't stumbling over themselves, aiming to avoid those guys. So this mix of three, mental skill and athleticism within the Venn diagram. So now imagine where one shrinks. If I'm looking at a kid that is a great athlete, he's got a great skill set, but he's a jerk, right? That mental circle within the Venn diagram would shrink. And the middle of our Venn diagram, that would be performance or potential. Performance for my athletes that I am currently coaching within the team, but potential for the kids that I am recruiting. So mental circle would, would shrink, but then you had these guys that were hard-nosed. They were leading with their head and uh, just being, being mentally tough leaders out there that didn't necessarily have the specific skills. So this mentigram mental circle increases so that potential would increase. They are coachable athletes and I can get more out of them long-term. That's really what I wanted. So within this diagram, it's figuring out within these kids, which I'm going to lean on or which I'm willing to sacrifice, but it all comes down to performance. After a few years within the collegiate coaching game and potential, uh, excuse me, recruiting really, really pulled on me because I felt I felt responsible for these athletes' performance because I was deciding, okay, we are going to invest four years in you, we're not. But within our, our local community, the cool thing about Division Three sports is a lot of the conferences are very close, not like the ACC where we're spread out from, from Florida to Kentucky all the way up to Syracuse, New York. No, it's, it's pretty close within the states, a few states at least, so if you miss a kid, he goes to one of your conference, conference rivals and you get it. You get to see him and you realize, oh, crap, man, I missed out on that opportunity. So you remember these kids. So it, I got an opportunity to see the ebb and the flow of this style of approach. But I really wanted to focus on athleticism. And this is where I started to deep dive into, all right, where can we have the biggest impact when it comes to performance, mental, sure, awesome, opportunity, skill work, sport coaches are very selfish and they really want to invest in skill. But when it comes to athleticism, the weight room, speed training, change of direction training, and being more aware of your body through space, this has the opportunity to increase both mental and skill and really enhance that center of the Venn diagram performance. So, Think of the mental respect for training athleticism. I'm going to put a heavy ass barbell on the kid's back and they got to figure something out about themselves. Weightlifting, sprinting fast, these things never get easy. So we have the opportunity to develop the mental characteristics that you're going to need in crunch time. Skill work as well. Underneath that heavy barbell, we can accelerate coordination development, inter intramuscular coordination, accelerating those processes, athletes become more aware of where their body is in space. 
And also they get a little extra coach and they're thinking about small adjustments where we're directing what to do with their feet, their, their, their trunk, their knees, their head position. All of these are minor adjustments. Now think about a coach with skill work, a baseball player making a small adjustment in your swing and you're expected to replicate that max velocity one, two, three, four times per at bat per game. And you got to remember through your body exactly what to do. So that coach is very selfish in that respect. Well, I can accelerate that ability to make that minor adjustment and replicate it through training athleticism in the weight room and speed work. So that is really that understanding. I really started to sink my teeth into that and try to fight for a transfer to training. So we are going to focus on athleticism, which will lead to injury risk reduction reduction. But this is the common language that I want to present to you, whether you're sports medicine professional, ACT, you are a ACT in charge of the strength training. I got a few friends out there that have taken on the responsibility of the weight room. This is your opportunity to create the common language to then talk and communicate to the parents, to the sport coaches and to the strength coaches. So a definition of athleticism. So this is from John Wellborn, the CEO and founder of Power Athlete. I'm going to break down this definition, but simply put, athleticism, the ability to seamlessly and effortlessly combine primal movement patterns through space to accomplish a known or novel task. If we defined it, then we can train for it. So we're going to break it into pieces. First piece is our primal movement position. So primal movement, not primal in respect to the, the paleo wave or the, the loincloth, primal in the theme of fundamental. We cannot do sport movements without seven fundamental movements of the body. There are four for the upper body. Think a vertical push, like a strict press overhead, a vertical pull, like a strict pull up or a chin up, horizontal push, like a bench press, or horizontal pull like a row. So these are four fundamental movements. An incline press would be a combination of a vertical and a horizontal push. But think about sport. It all comes back to these fundamental components. If I take away an athlete's ability to vertical pull, what now more advanced movement or skill within their sport do they lose? So when it comes to training and developing, I'm starting at the base with these four upper body movements to then help build the sports skill. Now for the lower, this is where things get fun and interesting. Guys, can you still see my, my, my face? Okay. So we have a lower and I have my old friend Pelvis Presley here. For a lower body, we have three fundamental movements. Now, I'm going to take this. I got a graph as well on the, the presentation. Now, taking you back to geometry class, I have my pelvis, and we're going to begin with our side. So our X axes are rotation. So imagine your pelvis as a, a bowl of soup, and then there's a line, an axis that goes from right to left on your hip bones. So as your hips rotate along the X axis, think of a hinge. This is one movement. We generalize this as a squat, but this hinge can be deadlifting, power cleaning, 
any form of Olympic weightlifting, front squatting, overhead squatting, all these different movements, right? But the movement is a squat, a hinge over that X axis rotation. Now I have back to my pelvis, a vertical axis that goes in for the top of my pelvis and my pelvis rotates along that Y axis from left to right. This is generalized as lunge. When I walk and take a step forward or full on into a lunge or start to move forward through space, that's the action of a lunge. So if my athlete has a big 500 pound squat and I've seen this, then you put them in just a simple lunge position with zero weight. Can they hold their body up? And it's amazing where athletes don't. So our strength training program can't bias the X axis of rotation and neglect the Y. Now we have our final and arguably the most important for sport is going to be our Z axis. So imagine a axis, a line of rotation going through my belt buckle, the front of my pelvis. And then as I march or sprint, think my knees are getting high up, my pelvis tilts to the left and the right. So not a twist, a tilt. So this is generalized as our step up, like we're walking upstairs or performing a step up onto a box. So these are the fundamental movement patterns of the hips and sport can be broken down into these fundamental pieces. Probably the easiest representation is gonna be an offensive lineman. They set up down on the ball, that's a squat, right? They're hinging over. They got one hand on the line. They're ready. As soon as the hike of the ball happens, their first step, that pelvis twists and rotates. They step into the lunge. And then defensive lineman tries to cut them. They hurdle them going, going over that athlete. So we have one, two, three steps in football. And think about sprinting that wide receiver within the football Sprinting is just a combination of X, Y, Z axis rotation happening in, in, in movement and beautiful representation of athleticism. So when it comes to training and developing, I have to have training for my X, I have to have training for my Y, training for my Z. If my athlete has an inability or an imbalance in the Y and the Z, but a big X, well, okay. Awesome. I'm not going to bias his strengths with neglect to Y and Z just so I can look good or hand over to my sport coach a, a spreadsheet with a great number when they're going to get their butts kicked as soon as they step onto the field. So this is our view and perspective of movement Then, then we can train and teach and really focus on when it comes to strength and conditioning program and injury risk reduction. Progressing through the rest of the definition, we have space. So this is as simple as our three planes of motion. We have sagittal, which is going to be straightforward, everything I can do in a door frame. Then we have our transverse plane. Think about twisting or rotating or separating my shoulders from my hips, very important for sport. And then my frontal plane, my lateral movement and side to side. Stu McGill refers to the frontal plane as the injury reduction plane. Because most back injuries, Stu McGill, back pro, Stu McGill, excuse me, most back injuries come when they're not paying attention. You get hit from the side. And if you don't have the stability 
to maintain your position when you take a contact from the frontal plane. That's when a lot of the injuries that he sees occur. So we have planes of motion. Our training will target X, Y, Z axes of rotation and movements of the hips through all three planes of motion. Now, athlete preparation. So this is my perspective as a strength and conditioning coach of how I will lead my athlete in the weight room. I want you to take this understanding and bring it into the weight room. If you're going to communicate with a sport coach, this is how we think. A very systematic approach. Put our athletes in a position to protect themselves for their, their performance, protect from injury, and just kick ass on the field. Number one, we reverse engineer our sport from the demands. We're going to identify the mental and the physical requirements necessary. This is based off the SED principles. The SED principle stands for specific adaptation to imposed demands. We know what our athlete will need to succeed on the field. Now we're going to build a program to drive that stress that eventually leads to the representation of that athlete, get them as close as we can within the limited season that we have, the off season that we have to prepare them for in season. Once we understand and write this program, now we have to have a form of individualization. So we have to assess our athletes and evaluate where they are. Simple evaluation examples, the combine. We have a vertical jump, we have our 40 yard dash, we have a bench press test. In a lot of weight rooms, you're going to see different squat tests. These are forms of evaluations and assessments to identify the current physical and mental attributes and limitations for our athlete. If you are high, working with high school, I cannot emphasize enough, do not do 1RMs with your athletes. Your high school athletes are not trained. They are novices. Even if they do max out for one rep, it is not representative of the ability. So your purpose of finding out how strong they are, they don't have the basic level of coordination or the number of reps necessary under heavy loads to give you your evaluation purpose or assessment. Stick with three rep maxes or five. That'll give you a better idea of the limitations and an accurate representation of the ability of the athlete. So if you're high school, avoid ones, they don't have the coordination. So limiting factors that you would see, what happens to their movement, to their trunk, to their head and neck position under the barbell. These would be representations. Mental, how are they reacting to the barbell underneath it? Are they, they wincing and winding underneath that strain? Are they stone cold killers? That's what I like to see. So just taking little notes of all these different things, how they're moving, what is their mental representation, their reaction to these evaluations and tests, and then the minor things of what's happening to their feet, their knee, their ankle, their hip, under these near maximal loads of three and five rep maxes, those are going to be limiting factors that I build my, which goes to our next step, build my accessory movements on. So the final step after I understand the demands of sport, assess my individual athletes, I write and complete develop the program. So this is my accessory work. We're going to need more 
bodybuilding because I, I've got these 13 year old kids with pencil necks. Awesome. We're going to hit some more dips with chains around our necks to help build our traps and posture and position all the good stuff. So the final step after you assess, evaluate is develop your program on this note. Do not take University of Texas's college program for these awesome four or five star recruits and give it to your high schoolers. They are not these athletes. Simple squat, step, lunge with the barbell. That's going to help take you a long way, which leads us to the goal here in our athlete preparation model preparedness. Are they able to step onto the field game one or scrimmage one and execute? don't necessarily have to win, but are they able to stay healthy? Are they able to replicate the best of their abilities that you've seen within the weight room? Awesome. Taking this concept of systematic approach, that is strength coach thinks, and now applying it to injury prevention. So we have our injury prevention model, the same concept, the same idea, and how my systematic approach is thinking. So take this concept and bring it into your score coaches or evaluate their thought process or evaluate their program to get them there. So where I previously checked for the demands of the sport in terms of speed, body size, different adaptations. Now I'm going to really deep dive into the sport to find common injuries, field court sports. We see a lot of Achilles, ACL, uh, back, shoulder, contact sport. So I need to identify these and then help understand how I can prevent them through what is the cause, what is the mechanism for the injury. Through Tim Hewitt's ACL research, I'm going to present next slide the mechanisms for an ACL injury that are modifiable and can be adjusted within a training program. So identify the injuries and then the causes the mechanisms for these. Now I need to educate my strength coach on more valuable assessment tools. So I'm not going to, to rain on the FMS as a tool, awesome tool for opportunity to see minor things that could happen to an athlete. But at the same time, if I'm working with a football team and with these new restrictions in phase one, where I can only see 10 athletes at a time, FMS is, is not a very valuable tool in terms of the scalability. Plus, if I'm the only skilled professional working with a whole batch of high school or Division three All-Stars, that's just not going to fly. So we need valuable tools, and this goes back to our theme and our purpose in creating a common language of movement. So I'm not going to teach my sport coaches the FMS. I'm going to teach them different fundamental movements that if they see something, a minor adjustment that is not in line with the execution, then we can have that coach intervene with a cue, a direction, or a corrective exercise that goes in play. So we want every single movement that our athlete does, not just our initial screening. We want all of our warm-up reps. We want all of our training reps. We want all of our practice reps to represent an athlete's assessment to see biomarkers for injury. So if I can train my coaches to see movement, not execute a screening like the FMS, but see movement, then it makes them better weight room coaches 
because sport coaches are great. They have intrinsic that they have an intrinsic coach's eye for the minor adjustments. Going back to our baseball coach with the swing. Now, if I can help train them for what to look for for simple things like squat, step, and lunge, or different pillars, or Stu McGill's big three, if I can have my sport coaches know what to look for within those big three and make the small corrections. That is going to translate then to their athleticism development, their coachability, their mental toughness, and increase their skill. Why? Because they can stay on the field. So assessment, I want every single rep, every single warm-up, every single weight room, every single practice as the athlete's assessment versus a screening tool. Now, finally, complete the program where we would take our accessory work for the strength coach. Now, this is the minor things. I'm talking warm-ups. I'm talking pillar work. I'm talking about the accessory that is individualized towards ankles, towards the stabilization of the hamstring, or fighting the, the tools in which we're about to get into with the ACL-specific mechanisms. But I need to add these things between the big squat sets after the accessory work within the training or integrate it into the, the practice warm-up, the training warm-up. There's so much opportunity to complete the program that leads us towards prevention and then the long-term injury risk reduction over the length of this athlete's career. All right, so that is our injury prevention model. We're going to take the ACL specifically and bring it through our model. All right, number one, our ACL tear mechanisms. So according to Dr. Tim Hewitt, there are four neurological modifiable risk factors to focus on. First one we're going to talk about here is quad dominance. So imagine a, a female soccer player, someone who has these quads that are very clear and visible, and then a straight drop from their glute down through their calf and their hamstring. So quad, it's a group of muscles that dominates this deceleration and the action of the knee. We actually don't want that. We want to rely on a whole chain and system of movements on our backside, a posterior chain to protect that knee. So if this one group is dominating the movement, and you can see this through, Tim Hewitt's got a great jump test, tuck jump test. If you can hear the athletes pounding within the ground, very quad dominant. If they cannot replicate and get their knees up past their hips during that tuck jump that's a sign for this quad dominance. If as they jump, their torso is very vertical versus pushing back and their center of gravity pushes their hips back, chest goes above in front of their knees, that's a good athletic position. But if we see vertical hips and the knees are doing all of the action within that, representative quad dominance. So this is a very clear ACL injury mechanism for that squatty body athlete, mostly in our female athletes. That's modifiable. Some of the ACL injury mechanisms and causes are genetic, anthropometrical, and female versus a, a male athlete hormonal, but I'm bringing up four that are modifiable and trainable. So need to say that. Next up is ligament dominance, most common in our tall, lanky basketball or volleyball athletes. This is where they don't have the musculature, the structure 
to dampen the force. So if the musculature is not there, next in line, it's going through the ligaments and we have internal rotation at the hip where we have a hard adduction, think knee valgus, knee driving in. That's a representation of ligament dominance. This is a neurological disorder. Either muscles are not firing or there's not enough structure to go there. So my strength training program would target both neurological and structural adaptations to protect the athlete. Next and third, we have asymmetry, also known as leg dominance. Sport in themselves are asymmetrical. Volleyball, baseball, even soccer with one plant leg. So in our training, we need to identify, okay, this is an asymmetrical sport. My strength training or my injury prevention protocols, we need to balance our athletes out. So taking that same tuck jump test, if you start to see in it, one knee is getting higher as our athletes tuck straight up and down, or one foot starts to make ground contact time before the other, a one, two, a one, two versus a one, one, one. These are symbols and showing you that your athlete is asymmetrical. Just by playing a sport though, I know they're asymmetrical. So we have to tailor that into our program. Finally, and the number one and most important ACL tear mechanism that we need to take into consideration is called trunk dominance. We can have perfect foot placement, perfect coordination, nice and slow and low if we're teaching them a 5-10-5, all the footwork is perfect. But if they have a weak trunk and take a perfect foot, but then their trunk starts to go over their center of gravity and take away and compromise the leg positioning, then we're in trouble. So where Stu McGill refers to the frontal plane as the injury, injury prevention plane, we would think the trunk dominance, just having a strong, thick tree trunk for a trunk, like an oak tree, that is going to help protect our athletes from ACL and when it comes to contact injuries, be the hammer. So trunk dominance is the number one modifiable that we need to take into consideration that could not be seen in a small screening. But if we go into representative of training and watch different drills and into practice, we can really see trunk dominance take over. This is represented in the tuck jump. If they are all over the place, imagine we drew an X on the ground and had our athletes jump straight up and down in that tuck jump. And they are all over that X, despite our coaching and our emphasis on jump in place. They're all over the place. Trunk dominance, they can't control themselves. All right. So those are mechanisms. And I've referenced the tuck jump as an example of an assessment. But you can throw, I'm not, this is your opportunity. If you were one-on-one, -on -one, throw the FMS in here and look for these. But your assessment, I don't care what the assessment is or the evaluation or the screening that you have in place, you're, we want you to look for four things. You're checking the trunk, side pillars, uh, tuck jump, in, even in the FMS, if you have the opportunity when we're lining up our heels, are they swaying left and right, representative of a weak trunk. My favorite trunk test is going to be a heavy barbell. Are they able to maintain good, tall, pretty posture at their maximal loads through their full range of motion? So trunk needs to be the focus of a majority of your screenings, evaluations, or assessments. Then we have to include primal movements, so our X, our hinge, 
our lunge with over that Y axis, and then our step up. We can't only rely on the Y, only rely on the hinge. If I'm a, if I'm a strength coach, I'm going to bias the X axis of rotation. It's just what we do. So you as the sports medicine professional, I need you to have tools ready to show them where they're weak within their lunge, show them these, their AD duction when they perform a step up. So I have tools in place to show these four, four injury mechanisms that can help complete the program. Frontal plane, we mentioned with Dr. Stu McGill, side pillar, great tool. And then our transverse plane for sport specifically, not just moving through the, the transverse plane, separating your shoulders from your hips. What happens if I take one lunge forward, maintain my foot position, and then twist towards my knee? Am I able to lock that knee in place and get a clear separation of shoulders and hips to the left and right? Or when I twist to the left, does that knee a, a B-duct away? Does it drive and dive in to our, some, some valgus or some internal rotation where I see some ligament dominance occur? as well as my inability to separate my shoulders from my hips. So as long as you're looking for trunk XYZ primal movements, not just one, all three, and then include the frontal and the transverse plane, that's pretty darn representative of the stress that they'll see in sport. So if you see injury mechanisms occur within your controlled environment, it is going to happen in practice. It will definitely happen within the game, because game, they are trying harder. They are fighting, and we have now an external opponent in an uncontrolled environment. So if I can see it in a controlled environment at higher velocities, higher stress, and reacting to the environment and an opponent, the injury mechanism will appear. Finally, corrective ex exercises, which we will get into our next portion here, but we're focusing on re-education. Going back to Tim's research, he refers to this as a neurological, these are neurological mechanisms. So we're going to reteach our athletes how to move, focusing on athleticism. We have the opportunity of warm-ups and accessory work. If you are sports med that has zero control over the weight room, the one consistent thing that all athletes have, whether it's practice, games, training, or even seeing you for the rehab, is the warm-up. They have to, and all sport coaches will agree, we gotta do some form of warm-up even if it's just laps, right? That is your opportunity to now implement the corrective exercises to re-educate your athletes. So don't give me the excuse you don't have time. Your target is the warm-up, and most sport coaches are they're willing to give that up because they don't know what to do. As long as you don't go over 10 minutes, five minutes, whatever they do give you, take it and run with it. So all of these going through it will lead us to ACL tear prevention, reducing our injury risk over the life cycle of our athlete's career. All right, targeting education. Neuromuscular education, very big concept, a lot of research behind this, and I, I love it. I'm gonna do my best to simplify it for you here. So why we're going to attack injury mechanisms. So dial in and focus on these things. If your athlete expresses quad dominance, 
want you to put in place a posterior dominant strategy. So they are relying on the front side, posterior dominant strategy. This would include building the musculature of the hamstring, the calf, the glute, that backside, or if they have it, starting to educate it on how to reduce force. I love non-contact plyometrics that are teaching our athletes to lengthen load under tension. I'm not talking about flexibility and just touching your toes. I'm talking about an active range of motion. So very difficult. One of my favorite tools, feel free to Google it, power athlete and seesaw walk, like the old playground seesaw. I don't know if it exists anymore, but if you Google that, we got plenty of demos on that little guy. Great representation for posterior chain dominant movement that teaches you how to jump, land, and reduce force. Next up, we have ligament dominance. This is that internal rotation, that adduction at the hip. So we're sticking with that posterior chain dominance, understanding the athlete. If they are the taller, lankier, leaner athlete, I need more musculature. We're going to hammer them with some hypertrophy, but once they do develop this new musculature, we need to educate it on how to move. Plus, we are going to develop triplanar arch. So we're getting out of our, our, our shoes. So this is, again, basketball and volleyball athletes. They're in dang shoes the whole time that are destroying their feet. They look amazing. But no, the shoes are killing their feet. So we get them out and develop this arch and they're able to use their feet. So that pairing that with the upstream of the posterior chain dominant is a good approach. And this won't be automatic. It's we are re-educating and teaching them how to move again, which is not easy. Finally, asymmetry, symmetry strategy. Meaning if I'm a baseball player, I'm all right arm within my throwing, my training is going to be a lot of left to equal that strength or equal the range of motion. And this is a, a simple rule for a strength coach. I'm sure your community has, has specific measures and tools for this, but a fast thinking approach that I take is the strength of the dominant arm, but the stability and the range of the motion of the non-dominant arm. So that would be my objective and fast thinking goal towards symmetry. Now, trunk dominance, simply put, trunk strategy, which I'll get into some examples, but we're going to overload our, our athlete and give them the opportunity to develop trunk stability within this, and they're able to take hits in a contact sport or control their own body through space when it comes to non-contact. There are phases of education. First is going to be alignment teaching your athlete the setup and the position to get into. The best example I have is the squat, the hinge, and a universal athletic position. So with the alignment that we have, imagine an A frame. From the ground up, we have our feet, toes pointing forward. Our knees are tracking above our arches, our insteps, and then just outside our hips. So that is our A frame. We're gonna set up in that position. We're gonna line our athlete's toes forward. Then we have, we're gonna begin with force reduction. Think about loading into the bottom of the squat. So our athletic position, a great tool as well to practice loading and getting into a good position. I could have them perform an open step, which is stepping, opening 90 degrees. That would be an example of force reduction 
through the transverse plane, or if I'm set my A-frame, a lateral step catch, that is going to be representative of the frontal plane. Can they maintain a good universal athletic position as they move through three planes of motion? Then I have force production. This is where a lot of strength coaches will default, and pun intended, jump to force production because I can measure it, I can see it, I can put it into a spreadsheet to show off or put it on a leaderboard, force production. I don't want this to be the first tool that we have. Can you get into position and then eccentrically maintain good alignment in loading before we explode and go up? So force production, I would focus more on lunge jumps or dynamic step-ups or skips versus just barbell and squat as I am evaluating my athlete, just meeting them for the first time. If I know my kids, I'm going to utilize a barbell. If it's my first exposure to these guys, we're going to use the skips and lunge jumps as my opportunity to test force production and teach force production. Then I have isometric force. This is going to be holding that UAP, holding a lunge, but I'm going to apply force from the side so I can partner my high school athletes up. One guy pushes as we're trying to maintain the good lunge position or squat position. Those go a long way for establishing isometric force. And if one athlete is pushing on the other, you can see where they're starting to fail if one of the injury mechanisms appear within that, that kid helping out and adding resistance. Rule number one, there's a fine line between being a jerk and a good teammate. So don't try to push and overload those guys to make them fall over. Get enough where it's challenging their boiling point, not their breaking point. Then we have protective force. This is where we start to combine prime movement patterns. Think about lunging Think about lunging through space going forward, and that is and high knee. So you're going to lunge forward and then bring one high knee up into a high march before you progress into your, your next lunge. This is going to be combining a lunge and a step up. That's an example of combining primal movements, protective force that is, that is representative of movement, stress, opponents, different things that you will face on the field. And finally, overload. If you can squat well, you can lunge well, you can step well, and you finally learned that process, it took you a few sessions to get there, now we need to stress to progress. So once you've shown that you can move well, I need to add load. This is where barbell comes into play. This is where uh, sandbags, any awkward implement, if I'm out on the field and I don't have anything, you got a teammate and we can add stress to that teammate, whether it's just buddy drags or buddy carries, finding a different way to then stress good movement. We don't want to overload and stress poor movement because that's how they got there in the first place. This is the, the simply put principle of specificity and overall objective of transfer of training. Take these quality movements into the weight room. And once we can master them and really overload them in the weight room, they will be carried over into the field. Finally, I mentioned earlier, your number one opportunity is the warm-up. One consistency that every athlete, athletic session has 
is this warm-up. If you need to rename it to then add value to it, go for it. I had to rename when I was at Georgetown University, I had to rename the warm-up for one of the teams I took over because they already had a representation of the warm-up and they did not value it. No, this is the most valuable, more valuable than my barbell work. And I'll fight, I'll fight for this every single athlete that I get to work with because it is the opportunity to really lay this foundation of quality movement before we stress it and overload it. So the going back to the Georgetown deal, what I named it was mess ups, M-E-S, mobility, elasticity, and stability up, mess up. All right, aiming to simplify this and my focus is, my focus why for the warmups is 100% enhanced athleticism. There are four components that I mentioned earlier that get into athleticism. Number one is neurological re-education if we're re-teaching them how to move or educate middle schoolers, high schoolers, having a coach for the first time, education. Then biomechanical efficiency. Simply put, coachability. If I ask them to make small adjustments underneath the barbell or in, in their, their warm-up prep, these lunges through space, and they're able to go through the mental mechanisms to make those adjustments, that is a rep that they're going to be one step ahead when they step onto the sport field and their coach asks them to make a small adjustment within their sport specific movement. Then I have primal proficiency. We call our seven primal squat step lunge. Get really freaking good. Every day is an opportunity to master your movement. Then finally, psychological. Me as a coach, I don't like it when sport coaches walk around during the weight room and, and razz and jazz the kids a little bit because it takes away from focus, but I understand. So if I can then take that take that spot, take that position where the sport coach would kind of get a feel for them or crack some jokes, but then target it towards how they're feeling, where are they sore. If my strength training program or the previous sport practices got their hamstrings, got their calves, then, okay, well, we need to readjust this warm-up on the fly to help prevent anything that may be coming in play. So use the warm-up to identify where your program is affecting your athletes, and at the same time, are they ready to, to get into the stress? They, what is going on outside of sports that could be affecting them? And see if you can provide some perspective and opportunity there that you can either bring to sports med pro, bring to the strength coach, bring to the sport coach, but use that time. But I want most importantly, get a feel for how the training is positively or negatively affecting them so I can make a specific adjustment within the warm-up. My warm-up anatomy. So I got simple components to focus on and flying through these. And there's more, we got a free warm-up course on academy.powerathletehq.com. Deep dives into this, but simply put, here's the components of a warm-up that we have, whether it's five minutes, 10 minutes, or 15 to 20 in, in a portion of our strength training program or speed prep. Number one, pre-warm-up warm-up, get your chili hot, all the ACSM guideline purposes of warming up, of blood flow, blood volume, all that good stuff, awesome, go for it. Pre-warm warm-up, do a lap, go down the field and back, 
we need to do something. I just call this motion. We're going to do motion in there and I don't want any lollygagging. If they lollygag the motion, it sets the tone for the rest of the, the warm up. So I'm going to put them in a position to motivate them, push them or set intention in that motion, the pre-warm warm up, whatever it may be. Then I have always beginning with ISO stability. So think McGill's big three or simply pillars, dead bugs, something where you establish a tall, pretty posture that you will then challenge with the following movements. I'm going to focus on the feet and the ankles. Different, uh, if you warm up barefoot, awesome. Different cocky walks, dorsi plantar flexion, just something to focus on that ankle and get them, them ready for contact. Primal movements as we progress, so we go ankles into primal movements, squat, step, and lunge. Then combine those. So after focusing on the lunge, focusing on the squat, squat into a lunge, into a step up, and start to combine them because that is sport. Com infinite combination of primal movement patterns through space. Then I have energy systems, no matter what the, the sport is, we need to dive into a, a specific more so energy system than others. Yes, we hit them all, but what is the practice call for? What does the game call for? So I'm going to target that. It could simply be five and back for football. If we are basketball, then maybe I'm not going to do a full 17, but maybe a 20 seconds to see how fast we can go. But representative of the, the peak, the highest demand that they will see in terms of energy system. And finally, the X factor, training versus competition. If this is a practice or weight training, my X factor, my final component is going to be focused on long-term development. This could be specific individual ACL, modifiable risk factor, or it could be specific footwork limitation. If my coach said my running back has got poor footwork, awesome, this is my time for this long-term development. PD goes and does footwork, and then this athlete over here does their specific work. So one moment, one opportunity that then adds up over the course of an off-season and in-season for long-term development or long-term injury risk reduction. Competition, it's game day. So I need to do something to get their mind right. Most likely after a warm-up position, they will go into – warm-up session then we'll go into position specific so linebackers are going to do hitting running backs are uh, i don't know what the hell running backs do offensive linemen are going to do pass protection defensive linemen are going pass pro so i know they're going to get into this so what can i do as a coach to focus on heightening heightening preparation for the moment i don't want to be talking about injury prevention and things like this during the X factor before a competition. I can't have that in my athlete's mind. If I'm talking about ACL tear moments before they got to go into their, their position specific, guess what they're going to be focusing on? Not getting hurt. I can't have that. So in training, in practice, awesome. Focus on this, create this big, big picture perspective of long-term development, injury risk reduction. But when it comes to the X factor pre-competition, you don't mention injury. You talk about them as the baddest dude to walk the planet or girl to step into the arena, whatever it takes to get them to, to 
to rise to the occasion. So be very mindful of your words. On our, I'm going to fly through this next portion, but I, I gave a sample of a warm-up that I would do for a field sport warm-up. If I have 10 minutes and we can fly through that, if you, if you got the slides, go ahead and check this out or more specific prep on academy.powerathletehq.com for specific what to do for warm-ups. But the bottom line, as long as you maintain that anatomy and then have the opportunity to take control of the warm-up from your sport coach, you can do a lot for your athletes' long-term development and injury risk reduction in their careers. Accessory work, this is where you need to touch base with your strength coach to communicate these things. There are four purposes that we're focusing on, or four whys. Number one is structure. I mentioned earlier during our ACL injury risk mechanisms, a lot of our athletes just don't have the musculature to, to take on the forces of competition, to dampen the force or protect them from injury for a contact sport. So we need to increase our athletes' musculature, structural adaptations. So maybe your sport coaches know how to do this if they're going in the weight room, but from my experience, most likely not. They're taking a program from a college or taking a program in the weight room that they did in school. No. So this is going to help complete a strength training program and direct it for your athletes. Number two is remodeling. Imagine the uh, best, best example I have for remodeling is going to be feet. You should never accept flat feet. We can develop an arch. We can remodel our athlete structure down there, but it takes time but it can be done. So every single day or between my deadlift sets or between my squat sets, we're doing foot work, two words, not footwork, like a speed ladder, foot work, triplanar arch development. So that is a great form of remodeling. Then hypertrophy, this is specific towards non-functional tissue mass, where I said structure earlier, I refer to as myofibril hypertrophy. We're increasing the cross-sectional area of our, our muscle. Hypertrophy, this is classic bodybuilding. This is a, a fluid-based hypertrophy, sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. So not an increase in functional tissue, but an increase in the size of the muscle that can help protect for contact. And if we're focusing around the knee, thinking our, our claws, our hamstring, that goes a long way for keeping the knee in place, nice structure. So while it may not have an explosive uh, functional, it's still good quality hypertrophy, classic bodybuilding style for protecting our athlete and everything around their knee. Finally, why is coordination? Athleticism, bottom line, intermuscular coordination. This is a coordination between my bicep and my tricep to get my elbow rocking, or my quads and my hamstrings to operate my knee. So it's cross-joint muscle coordination. Intra-muscular coordination this is going to be within one muscle, one muscle group. So the explosivity, if we're going science class, this is number encoding, rate encoding, pattern encoding. 
So the ability of a single muscle, once they have a movement pattern down through intermuscular coordination, then they can focus on the explosivity and the accuracy and power through intra, but not until they have good flow of inter. So last point, I'm, knowing, I'm, I'm talking a lot here, but if it's a squat day that your team is doing, add in during their accessory work, a posterior chain dominant and a triplanar arch dominant strategy. Hit lunges, hit transverse plane work. That means separating the shoulders from the hips and then foot work, two words. Pull day, like a big deadlift day or backside day. I want more posterior chain dominant strategy, but isolation exercises like bodybuilding hypertrophy. So I'm gonna do my step ups on pull days. I'm gonna target the frontal plane. Then I'm gonna isolate lower back, glutes, calves, hips, hamstrings to help build that, that structure. Jump on jump, Olympic weightlifting, big, big power days. I want symmetry strategy. So still primal Y and Z, but have these as explosive. I mentioned lunge jumps earlier or dynamic step ups or skips. So do your jump program, awesome, fine. But we're gonna add in unilateral plyometrics to help coordinate and even out your, your balance between right and left. And finally, on sprint days, I love these for trunk strategies because I'm already out at the track, I'm already outside. Trunk strategy is carrying, bracing. These could be sandbags, they could be farmer's carries, it could be sled pushes and pulls, could be partner carry, pull. Bear, bear hug your, your teammate and walk as far as you freaking can without making it awkward. So different trunk strategies in place, just as long as you are turning them into oak trees. Awesome. Get creative. But if it's easy, if it's not, it's not difficult for them, we are not getting better. And I need it difficult in a controlled environment so I can trust that they'll be ready for when it comes to an uncontrolled environment. Finally, this whole theme here is known as the principle of accelerated adaptation. In preparing athletes for sport and competition, we only have so much time. So I need in my exercise and stress selection to make it as accurate as possible to drive as much adaptation in the shortest amount of window as I can to put them in the best position to reduce the risk for injuries. Overarching theme and back to our common language, it all comes down to movement and execution. We can have these beautiful, beautiful mind warm-ups. We can have a perfect strength and conditioning program written. But if our athletes do not move well, if this is not training them neurologically, then we're not putting them in a position to reduce the risk. So that is everything that's, that's what it all comes down to is execution of movement. If you, you're, if you're working with sport coaches, they already have a coach's eye. You need to help train them what to look for. It's not talking about taking them and teaching them the FMS. No, teach them how to squat, step, and lunge, how to see movement, not specific movements like a barbell back squat. That is a specific movement. No. We're going to see a squat. So now when we understand the primal X pattern and execution, primal X is in 
my setup for my linebackers, my setup for my offensive linemen, my setup for my volleyball and tennis players. It's also set up for the squat. It's also a setup for a jump and landing in a jump. So all of these are connecting. So training your sport coaches what to look for in movement can help them carry over and save their athletes and reduce their risk for injury. But if we're simply looking at it as movements, as a sport movements, this is how you return to serve or how you land from your, your volleyball spike, whatever, whatever it may be. If you're just looking at it like that, it's just way too difficult to save your athletes from injury. So bottom line, big picture, think athleticism. That is the ultimate trump card when it comes to performance, and it's the ultimate trump card to keep your athletes safe and reduce the risk for injury. Bottom line, empower your performance. Thank you. I got my email up here, text at powerathletehq.com. Instagram handle is just my last name at McQuilkin. All right. So one of the things I wanted to go back to, you talked about in the athlete assessment, you put a heavy barbell on them for the trunk when you're, when you're doing the trunk assessment. So what does that mean to you, a heavy barbell? Cause you know, I see so many times where, um, coaches are like, you have to earn the barbell, right? So you got to be able to do the movements first and then you get to add weight. So explain that to me a little bit more. If I know the athletes, so if the situation is these are, are my athletes, day one, we are in the weight room. We do have a barbell on their back for a barbell back squat. 45 pounds, 33 pounds, whatever it may be, but heavy to them. So we're going to teach, we're going to go through dead bugs, which is simple, tall, pretty posture, and the opportunity to align yourself. Then we have one of our other warm-up movements. And feel free to Google any of these, Power Athlete and Dead Bug, Power Athlete and Spider-Man. So that's going to show my athlete the depth in which they are able to squat to today. So we do these warm-up movements that are teaching, almost chunking out a squat. And then we give them the opportunity to piece these all together with the squat. So yes, starting with a barbell. But all my programs for my athletes to initiate and begin are going to be a linear progression. So if we start with a 45 pound barbell and it doesn't look good, okay, well, we're going to do three sets of five at that 45 pound barbell because I know that my athletes need time to then coordinate and figure out the movement. But the next time they come in, I'm adding five pounds. So if they, even if they start at 45 or they did well enough to challenge their tall dead bug posture and it may be a little shaky but that's okay then they're going to add five pounds the next session if we squat twice a week adding five pounds each week the first three weeks they go through a phase that i mentioned earlier called intermuscular coordination so their body is figuring out their hamstrings and their quads are finding each other for the first time under this stress and it's going to take them three weeks three more or less weeks for them to figure out some athletes one day, some athletes one week, some athletes three week for intermuscular coordination to occur, where they're going to figure each other out. I'm not going to wait on them to earn the barbell. I'm starting with the barbell and accelerating that intermuscular coordination. Because in three weeks, if I'm adding five pounds a session twice a week, that is 30 pounds on the barbell for their body just to coordinate. 
Again, I'm a strength coach. I'm, I play aggressive poker. Let's just say that when it comes to the weight room, but it still is safe. But in three weeks, they're finally going to figure out their movement and enter into an intra-muscular coordination phase. And they're 30 pounds ahead of if we just did the bar before they patterned. Because I'm thinking four years, a long-term development of the athlete, that 30 pounds within the first three weeks, that is 50, 100. That is very explosive power that I have once we get through our initial year, our novice year for our athlete. So I'm thinking long-term, but in the first day, first week, first month with my athlete, Yes, I'm starting with the bar, something that challenges their ability to execute, but doesn't change or, or, or fail within that. So it is a fine balance. Some, some kids are, are different than others, but all of the athletes will be doing the barbell day one. Just a matter, it could be 33 to 45 pounds or 135 pounds. So that first session is nothing but warm-ups and, and squats to then establish our roadmap for the rest of the semester or year, depending on the, how much time I get with them in the weight room. So when this pod, when the podcast version of this is released, it'll probably be August. We'll probably be back to school. And right now in Texas, June 8th is kind of the day where they can start working on uh, working with athletes. So essentially most of our athletes have not done any sort of squats or anything. So are we going to need to basically start over with like day one with most of these kids after not doing any sort of weights? I 100%, I would treat this as an injury. They are detrained, they are deconditioned, they are out of it. So if I'm going to use my numbers, if once my seniors and I had them three years, but they just took six months off, I'm treating it like an injury. I'm not going to use percentage-based program off their old numbers. I'm definitely not going to one rep maximum to evaluate them. I know they haven't been doing anything. So what we can do is just find, like I did with the initial kid where we just did the barbell. I'm gonna do that with my freshman. I assume they did nothing. It's like an eighth grade going into their freshman year. They didn't do anything over summer. But now my seniors, my rising seniors, this is now their senior year. I'm gonna assume they did nothing because they may not be into training. If they are into training, all right, no harm, no foul but we're going to find a heavy five that then will set up my training for the rest of the semester. And my, I'll do tempo runs. I'll do work to just get them back into finding their stride, but I won't be testing a 40 yard dash. I won't be testing a one RM and anything. It's just finding a safe five to then ramp up throughout season to reduce the risk. All right, so that brings up another, another, another thing that I really wanted to ask about is the one rep max versus three versus five. Um, tell me why a three rep max is better than the one rep or the five is better. Like, especially I'm, I work in a high school, and so this is really what I'm focused on. So going back to the coordination, for a one rep max to, to, to really be representative of abilities, of a one RM ability, it takes two things. Number one, testosterone. Number two, opportunity and reps to dial in your form. So I know with these high school kids, their testosterone is up, down, and all around. Then we have 
lack of opportunity. They may have done a lot of squat reps, but it's not to the precision and the accuracy of a one RM. We should take the trend, the, our understanding of female athlete execution. Why can a female do a one RM, their one rep max, and then load up 85% of that and then be able to knock out 20 reps? Testosterone. So now if I take my kid, 85% should be representative of five rep max of a one RM, more or less. So if I'm testing for my kids five RM, I can predict his one. I'm not going to tell him the 1%, but I can be in a position to understand where they are. So even on testing fives, then we can accurate, more or less accurately understand where they are in their progression, but I'm not going to risk what can happen during a one. There are too many horror stories and one RMs for football coaches. Those are just selfish. They don't transfer to the field. It's for you to feel good. If I'm testing for my kids to understand their work, their progress, and their development, fives tell me as much as I want and need to out of that one. But it's more representative of who they are and what they are in their time frame from their 13 to 18 years old. So testosterone, opportunity, and reps, two kids, two things a lot of high schoolers just don't have. And so I've ha- kind of had a similar conversation with the coaches and then, you know, they, something you said was, so it's a number they can put on a spreadsheet and brag, but how do they figure out 85% if they don't have that 100%? It, it doesn't matter. The, the bottom line is progress. So I need to progress fives. So per, forget I ever said percentages and even mentioned that, but in order for if we are taking and the percentage blows up when we add female athletes into the equation. So you take 85% of their one and they can do 20 plus reps. That's why percentages are nonsense and don't matter because they don't have testosterone and opportunity. They got plenty of opportunity, but they don't have testosterone. Coaches want ones to show and evaluate, Oh, this kid worked hard. No fives tell the kid worked hard. You know how much of a more of a mental challenge it is to stay on a barbell for 30 seconds to knock out five reps? That's the kid I want fighting for me. So if you can paint this picture in all of the slides, I put why. Why above everything? Because I need that to be the leadoff. And we're improving and enhancing our, our ability to present and argue to protect our athletes. So if they are running in their weight room a percentage-based program, bring it to them to understand any percentage charts, Prilipin's chart or any Olympic weightlifting chart based off percentages comes from Russia who are professional Olympic weightlifting athletes that are also on a hell of a lot more drugs than your kids will ever understand or take or be have access to. So don't take that percentage chart and apply it to your program. If I do fives, it's representative of my athletes abilities. And then I can add five pounds to this five next week or progress. And if we're going to test fives, test threes or in that same ballpark, but it's the ones that sure they get one rep max that I can write on a paper, but it is not representative of who they are as an athlete. 
not representative of their abilities, their hard work, their progress, because their testosterone is up, down, and around. If they have a high T day, they're going to kill that test, crush it, and be on, be on all, all stars, and their coaches are going to love them. But, okay, then when their testosterone dips the next week and they have no idea how to control their body of movement or mood, then we test on that day, and they're going to be anywhere from 10 to 30 to 40 pounds less in their execution because their body wasn't firing. And then what? Then that kid is down on themselves and they don't, they're not representative of their abilities. But if we have fives over the course of a semester through a linear progression, we're allowed to fail. We're allowed to, to reset, take more opportunities at this, this weight and factor in life and hormones. But just taking a one, creating a percentage-based program on that, it's irrelevant. They probably stole that program from a college or a book. It's based off of kids that it's their job to train versus a kid that is one, two, three times a week in the weight room and the rest at practice plus school life and girlfriends, boyfriends and all that, that factor in. So percentage-based programs, one RMs, these are things at high school athletes should not do. They're not representative of their abilities. And a lot of kids get lost in the shuffle and they hate to see them get hurt when they load up too much, just going for it. I like that progress is the goal. And we're not, we're not focused on one rep max. We're just constant, steady progress a little bit at a time, making sure every, every rep, every session is an opportunity to grow and get better and to master your movement. I think it's funny because I, um, I remember the days of, in high school going, um, going through Husker power. Cause that's what it was. That's what we followed was the Husker power workouts. And, and I mean, uh, th those things were crazy. And for a high school athlete, it's a, it, it's, it's a world that, that you're just not prepared for, especially if you like, like Chris said, if you haven't had that time under a barbell. Um, but the one concept that I, I wanted, I, I loved about, about what they, about what power athlete talks about and what, what y'all do is that not so much having to that as athletic trainers we are going to potentially even do the strength training or be a part of it but as tech said you can do the you can it, it start putting input in about the warm-up and things like that but the concept i liked was in even in rehab how many times as has as an athletic trainer have we pulled the tib fib fracture? Have we pulled the the Achilles rupture? Have we just pulled the kid that's got patellar tendonitis and started him on some quad sets or whatever and not looked at the body as a whole and not looked at that that development of athleticism or what else we could we could be working on and then they turn around and get a second injury they tear their acl or they have a shoulder injury and then they tear their ulnar collateral ligament as a baseball player um that's the concept as an athletic trainer i thought with a lot of how they how they talk and they look at it as athleticism where a lot of times some, some athletic trainers, not saying all, because I know we're getting a lot better at looking at the athlete as a whole, but we can start assessing that with our 
just as as Tex mentioned, we can start assessing that when the coaches are running them through their warmups as a freshman. I know we would set um, some of our strength staff, some of our athletic training staff, and we would watch all the freshmen at, at the one o'clock lift. And we'd start seeing pointing things out of things that we might need to, Hey, this kid, we might need to do something with this kid. We might need to work with. But um, so I guess going and, and thinking about that concept and thinking around that, talk to me about how let's, let's talk in that high school world, because I think the high school world is, is, is very important. Um, it, uh, of this setting where there's such a, misunderstanding or there might not even be a strength coach it's that sport coach that's running this training and how can we start to make those conversations as athletic trainers when we don't need to be trying to take over we don't need to be trying to um to i guess say you're not doing the right thing those those coaches that are trying to hey i'm i'm running the university of texas's football program How, what do you think why aren't we running why aren't we doing the best thing and i know you've kind of touched on this but let me talk about that conversation that i can have as as a high school athletic trainer um and not develop that like oh well you don't even know what you're talking about or or you've got uh, you need to stay in your world yeah ego so I guess three limiting factors. We talk about limiting factors for an athlete and that could be footwork and, and different things like that. But uh, limiting factors for a coach that I've run into. So we have knowledge, experience, and ego. We got to identify, ask as many questions as you can to identify what the coach's limiting factor is. Is it experience? Is this the young kid on the totem pole that got handed the weight room because it's not valued? Is it the, the, the knowledge of they bring passion, they get these kids working hard and buying in, but gosh darn it, this is not a good the best program for these kids at this time. Or is it ego where it's their way or the highway? So identify what the coach's limiting factor is. Don't tell them what it is, but then start to appeal towards what we can change. If it's ego, which in Texas it's going to be, and I've had these, these conversations, I don't want to change it outright. What we can do is add something to make it better. Have you thought about this? Have you tried this? Or you get the injured or the half injured kids, right? Or the, kids that it's their ankle, it's their knee, they can't run, but they got to do something. And then you get those guys to then do pillar work, trunk work, and the upper body primals work. So it's doing such a good job with the scraps that he does throw you. Then we get the opportunity for more and more and more, but it will always be adding to their program. So accessory work, that's a good key term to understand, hey, we're just going to add some accessory work to your, your strength template. Or, hey, coach, you know, I noticed, I noticed a couple athletes standing around during the squats or the deadlifts. I got this great exercise that I've been doing, or I want them to try, or we've been 
doing with Billy during his rehab that I think could benefit some of the other ankle issues that we're seeing across the team. So it's finding ways to just sprinkle in and make their program better because they are the best. Um, so appeal, try to appeal to them. My, and this, this is big. If they work out, you have the best opportunity to then take over and really, really influence the program because you have the old Hollywood saying where show don't tell. So if they are into bench press, weight room, and all this good stuff, use those, use the seesaw walk, use the dead bug, and again, Google power athlete, dead bug, seesaw walk, and my videos are up there to show them how terrible an athlete or instable or what happens to their knee during a seesaw walk that shows a risk factor for, or an injury mechanism for an ACL tear. For dead bugs, it's, it's by far the best humbling tool out there. If you can't hold a good dead bug position for 60 seconds, at least our variation of it, okay, we can identify ankle, calf issues, hamstring, quads, tight hips, weak hips, trunk, mental toughness. Who's going to quit? If your sport coach is quitting after 30 seconds, hey, all right. So you have this opportunity to show, don't tell, if they train. If they don't train, if they are, uh, we used to play this game, Wellborn and I, when we go to a, a sport coach conference, be football coach or diabetic. We had to take a guess. If they're in that respect, in that realm where the, they are not into training, then we got to appeal some form, some way towards their ego and just making it better. My best suggestion would be that pocket of kids that are halfway between can't play and can't, uh, can't practice, can't play and can't do the weight room, but they can do something. Don't put them on the exercise bike, be present. So take them and say, all right, yeah, I can take these guys, but it can't be in our training room. It's gotta be in this corner of the weight room and you're doing smart pillar work. You're doing the foot two words work. You're doing shoulder dynamic, different things to show. And out of the corner of the eye, the coach can observe what you're doing. And maybe they won't feel and experience the value, but they'll be able to see the, the high level of coaching and teaching that you're bringing to that weight room or those kids. That's a big one that a lot of people will pick up on is that athlete that's in that middle ground, that athlete that might not even be the best athlete, but then they can see them grow into a little, a little bit better athlete or that's always hurt that we're dealing with anyway. And you just take them and, or that's just that injured group that they don't want to deal with. And we can take them and man, they really progress. What have you been doing with them? Um, mm -hmm. One thing I, I too wanted to mention was like taking them to the state clinic, take your coaches to the state clinic, Texas state, um, NSCA clinic. Um, that's something that they always have a lot of coaches, Texas strength, high school strength and conditioning coaches, as, as well as other things there. Um, that I know, obviously it was supposed to be this coming weekend and with coronavirus, it's things have been changed. Um, but it's a way to start getting things in years. It's, it's potentially not kind of some of the, some of the things that you guys talk about, some of them not. Um, but they always have 
coaches there that especially if you're in a high school setting that doesn't have a strength coach, they can start picking brains and talking and, and maybe even start opening up that world of getting somebody that's an actually certified strength and conditioning coach into, into y'all, into your school, your setting. Yeah. And I, I will say this, if it's, uh, if ego is the thing and everything, if you are hitting a wall, NFL trumps all for these football coaches. So if you need a freaking, a, a big swinging well-born to step up against these high school football coaches, there's nothing that he enjoys better. So the power athlete founder and CEO of putting down these ego walls. So feel free to reach out to us to step in and then have a difficult conversation with these coaches. That's what we're all about. So it's, it, it certainly is a part of empower your performance and if it means protecting these kids, then we're all for it. So if that, if that is the last break the call, call the ghostbusters, whatever it is, we are willing to step in and, and have that difficult conversation. And if that doesn't work, I don't know if you're in the right place. One of the, one of the last things I wanted to quick ask is, and I know Jeremy touched on this real fast was the, was some of the footwork stuff, footwork. Um, I know that Cal beats doing a bunch of stuff. You guys are putting on a, putting a lot of stuff in, and I know this is a huge topic, but where's some places, because that is a, that is a question that we got at the Trinity conference with regard to a lot of your talk as well as coach Clark's talk that followed yours in his warmup because he did some footwork stuff too. Where can we look for some of that stuff? Uh, one of our block one coaches that is a doctor of physical therapy. His name is Matt Zanis. He has a lot of articles on our website, powerathletehq.com for specifics. Uh, I also put a piece out that was just training exercises. So if you search tri planar arch development, and how these are utilized is between squat sets. So uh, I'm diving more and I should put more out on it, but active foot training is, I'm, I'm all for it, but I won't be able to overload as much. So it, it's a fine line between focusing on developing the foot and for our high school aged athletes, that limited window with the barbell to have this, this long-term effect. But in between the squat sets, uh, I would target with our high school kids, active foot isometrics. And if we go back to the slides that, that are passed along, we have a neurological, um, neurological education development. That's how we follow in our flow. So isometric is, is step four or five on there. So I would go through the different phases and get to isometrics. If my kids can't hold a good static foot position in a, if they have a weight stress of a goblet squat, then we would take it back down to some eccentric action or concentric action only and get to isometric. So it, it will take over. It will become the new norm for sure when it comes to the world of strength and conditioning and I'm all for it. I broke my ankle my freshman year of college and it has set out the year. And a lot of the, the tools that we go into with our foot stuff is my rehab, um, getting back to, to play. But at the same time, no reason I shouldn't have been doing that stuff prior to an injury.
So Instagram is by far the best, just at M-C-Q-U-I-L-K-I-N. That is my last name. And then for education, academy.powerathletehq.com, our overarching mission with that is application. So the one thing through my strength and conditioning education experience has been the lack of application knowledge and tools. So we have application and then second focus and mission under that is going to be social intelligence, your ability to present information and argue, argue in a good sense of the term to take back and empower your athletes performance. 